Thank you, John. Well, we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and it's printed for you in your bulletin the passage we're looking at, so you can either use that or turn in your Bibles. Do you know, as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and he will be this one person united in two natures forevermore. That's a profound mystery of the Christian gospel, and it's for our exploration of Jesus' own glory and for us to be able to give him more praise for who he is in his person. You know, we wonder when we state this doctrinal truth, we wonder how can it really be that he could be both God and man? I mean, have a human body and a human soul. And how can this be without limiting or changing either of his natures? And what would his incarnate existence really be like? I mean, how did he act as one person in wholeness and in unity? How did his sinlessness and his perseverance actually work itself out? And how can this existence, being incarnate, be further glorified after his resurrection in glory for all eternity? These are amazing questions to ponder and questions that we cannot fully and finally answer in our limited wisdom. can only be guided by what we know in Scripture. Let us pray this morning and we'll look at our passage today. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you as being our Savior, for we know that you became man so that you could redeem us from our sinfulness, that you could pay the price on the cross for the sins of the world, being perfectly holy, being the perfect representative of God to man and man to God, that you could be in our place, and that by simply putting our faith in you and not relying on any kind of religious works of our own, or self-righteousness and our own seeming morality to us, but understanding that we are sinful beings at the core and we need your grace, that we can cry out to you in faith and see that you are exactly the Savior we need. And we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit you would guide us as we look into Scripture and understand more of who you really are as our Savior. Amen. So sometimes when we state these really lofty truths... We acknowledge them, we'd be willing to sign a statement saying we believe them, but what is the value to our soul of these doctrines? That, God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Well, this particular doctrine actually will teach us a lot about the truth of who God really is and the truth of who human beings really are. It also leads us just to adore and worship Jesus for who he is. It also helps us reflect upon how our salvation was truly accomplished. I mean, if he were not fully God and fully man, then we would not be fully saved. But we know he is. And it leads us to a new joy in him. So please turn your Bibles again to Luke chapter 2 if you're not there. And we're going to continue in our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. It's pretty obvious in this passage why Luke includes it. The focus are the words that Jesus spoke to his mother in verse 49 when he said, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
So Luke is showing us the incarnation of Jesus Christ in action now. And as we're reading along in Luke, we're wondering, well, finally we get to it. We've been hearing all these pronouncements, all these advanced stories about how he would be coming into the world, and he comes into the world. And so now we see it actually moving forward in fulfillment. And with this story, Luke's desire is that we would wonder at who Jesus really is in his identity, in his personhood. Because, you know, soon enough, he's going to get into the stories of his life and his ministry, his teachings and his miracles, and ultimately the redemption that he's going to bring. But right before we get there, there's this passage in our story, or passage in the Gospel of Luke, and we're supposed to be astonished at this glorious mystery of who Jesus really is, that he is fully God and fully man. And Luke tells this story. It's a famous story about Jesus being lost and found um, on a particular pilgrimage for Passover that his family went on. And as you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, you might wonder, well, why? I mean, is it really that important of a story to tell us? I mean, it's sort of fun. It might be cute to some of us. But why is it there? And it's because of what Jesus said on that occasion that Luke includes it in his gospel. And so in verses 41 to 45, we find at the beginning of the story that Jesus stays back. He remains in his father's house. And then in verses 46 to 52, he announces that he's God's son. So let me read the whole passage to you this morning before we begin. Starting in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So as I mentioned, today Luke is actually finishing his prologue or his introduction to his gospel account. And next Sunday, we'll actually, in chapter 3, begin the preparations for his ministry. Now, but this is the highlight of the introduction, of the closing of the prologue, prologue, because we finally see Jesus say something. These are his first recorded words. And they're a testimony about who he is. He said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? You know, this story is what's called a pronouncement story about the identity of who Jesus is, and that's how we'll look at it in a briefly this morning. But it's not really a childhood protege story, and it's not really a simple lost child, found child story. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time as we unpack the passage talking about those elements of it. But it's so that we would see the glorious mystery of who Jesus is as both God and man, and we would come to worship him even better than we have before. 
So there was a particular pilgrimage that his family was on. It's a very memorable one, of course, in the minds and hearts of Joseph and Mary. And so the, pal- the Passover pilgrimage begins in verses 41 to 42, and then it ends in verses 43 to 45. So they go out, and then they return to Jerusalem, and the family leaves in verses 41 to 42. Let me just read that again. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. So they're leaving Nazareth. Now, there were three great pilgrimages for all Jewish men at the time that were supposed to attend every year actually in person in Jerusalem. So the first one is the one that we're reading about here. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which included Passover. It was in the springtime. And it was to remember the exodus out of Egypt. And then there was the Feast of Harvests or Weeks or Pentecost at the end of the spring harvest season. And this was to remember God's giving of the law. And then there was the Feast of Ingathering, or the booths or tabernacles, after the harvesting of summer crops, and this was to remember the wilderness wanderings of God's people. Now, in the first century, and this is important to understand here, the practice at the time was that the Jewish men would make sure they attended Passover, but recognize that it's not really always possible to make it to the other two. But every year we read, Joseph and Mary would travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. You see, Jesus' family was an especially pious family. In fact, so much so that Mary and the children even went along. It wasn't just Joseph. That's all that was required. And we don't know how many children Mary had at this time, but we know that from other portions in in the Scripture, she had at least seven children. You know, there was Jesus, and then he had four brothers and at least two sisters. So I like to think, that, he, that she had six, because we have six kids. Yeah. And so, and also, when you have six children, you realize that them forgetting Jesus, that's just part of normal life. So it's really not that complicated. I mean, in fact, there was one particular Sunday, you know, we just, back when I was pastoring in California, we just threw all the kids in the back of the van, and we drove home, and then we get home and realize we missed one. Now, we, count, we counted heads, but we forgot that we had a cousin with us that day. And so one was still back at church, and one of our elders, Tim, called us up and said, would you like, to bring, like us to bring your other child back? It's like, yeah, we'll take her. So, so anyway, I'd like to think that they had plenty. I mean, Jesus is 12, and if she's normal childbearing, that would perhaps be how many she had. But let's notice the spirituality of this family. It's really emphasized in Luke, and not just in this passage, but even last week as we looked at their commitment to his circumcision, to the purification rites, to the presentation ceremonies. Uh, And this particular Passover pilgrimage is noteworthy because it's the Passover in which Jesus turned 12 years old. And so training in the law, training in the Torah, training in the faith would occur between the ages of 5 and 13. And then the boy would become what would be called the son of the covenant. This would evolve into what is the modern equivalent of the bar mitzvah. Now, at the age of 13, then the boys would be actually required to go on this pilgrimage, but faithful parents would start their sons early. And they'd start them going once or two years in advance to introduce them to the practices of what goes on there. However, in Jesus' case, it's most likely not the first time that he's been there because his parents take him there every year, we read. Now, up to this point, this story is a pretty normal story. I mean, nothing really unusual is happening. 
But then, all of a sudden, we find that Jesus remains in Jerusalem. And so we read in verses 43 to 45, And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among his relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. So this feast um, would last, say, a Passover, a couple days, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and this will last up to about eight days. So the minimum requirement for, for men was to stay the two days uh, for Passover. And Joseph and Mary, we see, stay the whole feast time. Again, it's a noted comment on their devotion and piety after the feast. And so they travel in a caravan, and that's how people traveled at the time, made up of a lot of families, probably many of them from Nazareth itself, and they traveled together. It takes three to four days to go each way, so why not travel in a group? It's much safer, and it's a lot more fun, and all the fellowship along the way. And so on the return trip, Joseph and Mary apparently assumed that Jesus was among some friends or relatives in the caravan that first day. And it's also possible that the men and the older boys traveled in the rear, and the women and the children traveled in the front, and each assumed that uh, Jesus was with the other group. It's like, just like it happens in our families, you know, too. I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. I mean, it's the same kind of a thing. So, but when they get settled for the night, they're searching diligently, and they realize, well, he's not here. He's not even hanging out with the other boys. And so the next day, Joseph and Mary returned to, to, to Jerusalem to search for Jesus. Now, all of this in the storyline so far in the Gospel of Luke this is a setup, isn't it? I mean, Luke is a great storyteller. You know something really amazing is going to happen next. And by the way, you know, it's important to realize no one's guilty of anything in this story. Okay? Everyone is acting responsibly. Joseph and Mary are acting responsibly. Even the young boy Jesus is acting responsibly. responsibly. This stuff happens. You see. Jesus remains at his father's house. But before we even get to the heart of the story, again, I want to point out the piety of Jesus' family. I mean, Luke has gone out of his way, really, to make this evident to us that we understand this. Back in the chap chapter 2, verses 21 to 40, let alone our passage here, they were a truly spiritual family, very devoted. And that's what happens is families are committed to spiritual development of their children. It works its way out in the way they behave themselves and in the way they want to worship the Lord. It's a side application, I suppose. But all of these verses are readying us for this astounding revelation that's about to come up. Jesus' actions in the temple and his words that he speaks. And we're going to be astonished at the glorious mystery of him being both God and man. Well, Jesus will announce this, that he's God's son. But first, we find him reasoning in the temple in verses 46 to 48. Then we'll hear him teach about his identity. So the storyline continues in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw them, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So the three days is meant to be the, understood as the three days of the total time. So they go out one day, they come back a day, and now it's the third day while they're actually searching for him. And, you know, perhaps Jesus' thirst for knowledge and wisdom was so great that he even forgot about his family. 
Who knows? 12-year-old boys are interesting. But yet we understand that Jesus remaining without his parents' knowledge is again planned. It's planned for the lesson that's going to follow. It's a big revelation. And it's nearing the time, although it's still many years off in the way we think about it, but it's nearing the time for his revelation and his ministry to actually begin when he starts preaching the kingdom of God. So they find Jesus sitting at the feet of the teachers, listening to them, asking questions. The typical method at the time was to, of teaching was to dialogue about a question, provide answers, ask counter questions. And of course, this day, Jesus is the one really learning but amazing them. But, you know, one day, of course, we'll read as we go through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus would become the master rabbi. And they would be astonished at what he would teach. So Jesus' questions even here go way beyond like boyish probing into Scripture and, and rabbinical commentary on Scripture. I mean, he's virtually a rabbi already, it seems. Amazingly mature in his knowledge of God and of Scripture and of faith. And it's really important here to point out a few things just for your <clears throat> um, enjoyment, perhaps. But, you know, there are a lot of non-scriptural uh, documents that floated around in the early church time frame that are heretical and have heretical purposes, and they'll comment on this whole section. And the fascinating thing is that if you watch <clears throat> what goes on in critics of Christianity uh, throughout the decades, even in our time frame, every once in a while, these heretical documents, these forgeries resurface in a discussion and, you know, they make it on Time magazine cover and these types of things, you know. So it's really important to realize that this is the totality of the Scripture that we have about this experience. So it's not likely that we should go so far as to state as one document, the Gospel of Thomas, says he was shutting their mouths. You know, the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic document. Gnostics were dualists. And they denied the incarnation of Christ. And they thought you had to get special knowledge in order to be saved. Not something that would be readily available to everybody, like Scripture. It's about the 4th century. And of course it's a forgery. The Apostle Thomas didn't write it. But also, there's other ones out there too. So you have these set of documents. But then you have sets of documents that are called the infancy narratives. And, you know, they usually come much later. The one that's, uh, another one that's common is about the 5th to 6th century. It's called the Arabic Gospel of the Infancy of, of Our Savior. And it says that Jesus, what he was doing at the temple is he was waxing eloquent on the topics of medicine, astronomy, and physics. Yeah, sort of laughable. But, you know, that's what people like to do. They like to make up things about Jesus when it's not in the Bible. They want to, at least maybe from a, a positive, they want to fill in the information that they think that they should be there, especially if it's going to promote their agendas. And neither should we entertain some other apocryphal stories of the boy Jesus sort of exhibiting unusual supernatural powers at the time. This one might become very, um, if it hasn't already, become very popular in the infancy gospel of Thomas. Again, of course, it's a forgery um, and has heretical purposes. It basically talks about Jesus is sort of checking out his new powers that he just discovered. And he's practicing his miracles, sort of like a young wizard. Yeah, sort of fits with some of the things that are out there these days. It could easily be 
brought in. But you see, we need to stick with true scripture, which is apostolic and is available to everybody and contains true doctrine. Rather, everybody who heard him in the temple, you see, they were amazed and understood his answers, and he probably showed penetrating insight, perhaps opening up new understandings to the scriptures that they hadn't considered before. And much of this, you see, what Jesus was saying is probably exactly what we have in the New Testament. So, we didn't miss out on the conversation. And you don't have to become a heretic to make up something that you think might have happened then. And the amazement is at the acknowledgement of God's gift and perhaps his presence with him. And Luke records that people were in awe of the things that Jesus was doing and saying so that we will do the same. I mean, that's how we're supposed to read Luke's gospel. That's how we're supposed to read all of the gospels, to stand in awe of Jesus as we read them. So maybe sometimes as you're reading through the gospels and maybe it's your Bible reading plan or maybe you're trying to keep up in Luke or, you know, There's nothing wrong with just simply not finishing and simply saying, you know, maybe I need to stop for a moment and just really ponder what I'm reading and adore God for who he is. And if you haven't read the Gospels that way before, you know, we're early enough in the Gospel of Luke, we're only in chapter 2, you can start reading the Gospel that way and, and see what it does for your soul. But you know, right before the story in verse 40, we had that phrase, if you look back, they're quite briefly there, and the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and in the grace of God was upon him. Now Joseph and Mary, when they show up on the scene, they finally find him, they're astonished uh, too, uh, not only at what they're observing him doing, but they're also astonished, you know, a little bit more because they're overwhelmed, they're relieved that they found him, and of course they're upset because in our story they're first of all parents. They're indignant and surprised at the seeming insensitivity of their son. And Mary's words are recorded. She's upset that she was treated and their anxiety that it caused them and others. And these are the natural words of a mother's scolding. But as some of us have probably also learned in life, maybe he didn't know they left. So you see, first of all, we need to realize this is a normal family on the one hand but it's also a very abnormal family on another. And we have to remember that because as we read along in this storyline, as as one other pastor put it, this indignation is tempered with astonishment at what they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're told. And we can't help recall Simeon's words earlier in the Gospel of Luke. They're already being fulfilled. If you look back briefly to Luke chapter 2, verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. It's already beginning. To the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So we find Jesus teaching about his identity then. So in verses 49 and 50 we read, And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. These words of Jesus and the response of Joseph and Mary are the focal point of this whole story. He gently asks them why it is that they would need to look for him anywhere else but the temple. 
And he says it this way to increase their faith even then. They should have known where he would be and why he would be there, it seems. They of all people, of all people, they have had this greatest revelation and experience with Jesus for 12 years. He would be close to God. He would be close to the instruction. He would be in the temple. It's similar to a statement that is given at the end of the Gospel of Luke to the women at Jesus' tomb after he'd been raised from the dead and the angels speak to them in this way, a very similar way. And the purpose of them speaking to them this way is not necessarily to castigize them for not remembering everything Jesus taught, but to increase their faith in who he really is. In Luke 24, 5, it says, And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. It's a similar type of a statement calling for faith. But more to the point, Jesus says he must be here. It's necessary. It's God's will for him to be in his father's house. And some of you might have a different translation there about my father's business. That's actually not the best translation. Father's house is the best translation of the Greek idiom here, and it's the most accepted one. Not a whole lot of difference between them anyway. But the point is, is that Jesus is conscious of his personhood and his purpose as the Son of God. God is truly his Father. He knows that. He is, God is his Father in an eternally begotten sense, which we'll talk about here briefly soon. And that's his priority relationship. Joseph and Mary are confused, even though Gabriel had already told them that he would be called the Son of the Most High. It's hard for them to absorb this new development in the life and the ministry of their son, it's perhaps even more astounding to hear him announce, for the first time, his identity. And along with all of this, they're realizing his consciousness. He knows who he is. He is God the Son. So their wonder and confusion is really the same for all of us. Our struggle to comprehend the mystery of the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope we're in wonder and worship too. Here we meet the very purpose of Luke's account. Luke's gospel account is to bring us to a resolution about who Jesus is. Because a lot of people out there have been saying different things about Jesus. So he wrote his gospel to tell you exactly the truth. Many people today say many different things about Jesus. But if you want to know the truth, then you go to the scripture. Then you'll find the truth about who Jesus is. And Luke also wants to give us a knowledge about how our faith in Jesus would lead to salvation. Well, then Jesus continues on, and he just sort of leaves, and our storyline leads us to ponder. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus returns to Nazareth with his parents. He went up, went down there. Uh, emphasis is placed upon his subjection to them, as children are supposed to be. Uh, but this is noteworthy concerning the story and his, and his newly revealed identity. And it's also an interpretation, though, of his actions above that he wasn't disobedient at all in this whole storyline. His actions and words about being in the temple. And the implication then is he continued like this and for the next 17 years or so until the beginning of his ministry. Now Mary treasured all these things. 
Jesus' actions, his words, what she saw him do, what other people were saying. And she was reflecting all this, starting to keep a much closer eye on her son. Perhaps she's making progress in her understanding of her son as the son of the Most High. But the real question is, are we? Are we making progress in our understanding of who Jesus is as the Son of the Most High as we read through the Gospel of Luke? Are we reflecting on the Scripture? Are we watching carefully as we read? Are we making progress? Because in doing so, there is great reward. And as we go through the Gospel of Luke, I encourage you to do it that way and to read the Scripture that way. And then in verse 52, there's a repeat of the idea in verse 40. The story is in between them two. Emphasis on his increasing in wisdom here. His human nature increases in wisdom, while his divine nature, of course, possesses all wisdom. His stature here could refer to his physical growth or just a general term for personal maturity. In favor with God, a man emphasizes that he is becoming morally approved. In other words, he's the ideal son that is presented in the book of Proverbs. That's only one way in which Jesus fulfills the book of Proverbs. Again, all of this promises so much more to come in the Gospel of Luke. So be ready and be watching for what you're going to find. Jesus announces here he's God's son. There are so many detailed questions about his person we would like to have answered. Maybe someday, to some degree, we'll know some more in eternity, and that'll be for more of our marveling at who he is. Yes, the scriptures do give us, though, a very clear picture of who he is. One person with two natures. And this revelation is meant for our examination so that we would grow in our understanding, so that we would grow in our satisfaction, so that we would grow in our worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Savior, and we are to be astonished at who he is. This will increase our personal relationship with Jesus that we have as well make it all the more personal. So I want to take a moment to discuss the union of the two natures in one person of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is a very, very large topic, but I'm just going to give you a couple concepts at this point to guide your own investigation. So the best place really to begin uh, is with the Chalcedonian Creed. So Dan, if you could put that on the screen. And then you have, I have a copy printed for you as well because you can take it home that way. And you don't have to write all this down. It's too long. So the Chalcedonian Creed is from 451 AD. It's one of the outcomes of an ecumenical council where it was finalized, the expression of who Jesus really is is this one person with two natures. So I'm just going to read it to you and make a couple comments because some of the words are, are not that clear to us these days. So we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. So far, so good. Truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial, that means having the same essence, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, in other words, this little phrase is saying that he, there is one God in three persons. And Jesus 
is consubstantial. He is fully God with the Father according to the Godhead. And he is consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us yet without sin. Begotten before all the age, all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. This means that he is eternally the Son. He didn't become the Son at some point in time. It's eternally God, the Fa- God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably. So these are highly technical terms in, in the original languages, but what these two are saying, that the divine nature and the human nature are not confused and they're not changed, is saying that he really does have two natures. There's not a third one that gets made up. So it's not like these two natures merge together and there's really a third thing that pops out. So it's not that. That's another heresy for another day. But indivisibly and inseparably, these two words are talking about how they're united in one person. He's not two people. He's not two people. He's one person. He just has two natures. And that's what those words mean. And now we get to the heart of the matter here where it says, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared since concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So it's a long creed, take it home, use it, become familiar with it. It helps you move forward in your understanding, in truth, and faith, delight, mystery. You're not going to figure it all out because it's a great mystery. We don't have time to go through all the specific examples of how this union works itself out because that's one of the most fascinating questions and that we have in our own minds is how does this work itself out in practicality as we read about Jesus? And as we travel through Luke's gospel together, it will come out, and it will be very clear to us, and I'll point it out as we go along together. But we all have to wrestle with who Jesus is and who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Son of God, made man. That's his claim. And in our passage today, we learned a lot about him. We learned about his unique, eternal relationship with his Father in the triune Godhead. We learned about his amazing wisdom, showing that he has access to more truth than any other man. We learned about his self-knowledge of his identity, of being both fully God and fully man, and his mission in the world that he came to accomplish. Luke is showing us really the incarnation in action that's going to be moving forward and fulfilling its purpose in the storyline. Because his cross work, his work on that cross, depends on his personhood. You see, that's why creeds like this were so important and are still important because if he's not fully God and fully man, then you don't have a full salvation. He's the perfect mediator, and that's why 
this passage and this creed and understandings here are so important for us. I hope that we're astonished at this mystery of Jesus being God and man. The real application of a text like this is to go home and marvel. That's the application. You don't have to actually have to do anything. How, how relieving. You, know? you just have to marvel at what you read about the person of Christ. So what the application is not, it's not to go home and destructively debate it or secretly doubt it. Or to even, I've seen this sadly in churches with Christians, piously ignore it. Somehow thinking, oh, well, this is too great, too lofty. You know, that's what theologians do when they have nothing better to do is make up the stuff. But that is really dismissive of the glory of who Jesus Christ is. We're not supposed to go to the story to find parenting advice or ponder the merits or the extent of obedience to parents. Some Christians are too focused on obedience. It's not to spend time in exploring the concept of the age of accountability, which is another common misunderstanding of this text. It's not to speculate about what it would have been like to raise the Son of God as your boy with some sentimental thoughts in your minds and end up focused on the wrong characters in this passage. It's not about Joseph and Mary. It's about Jesus. So the, the right application is to ponder Jesus that's what the faithful do when they come to a passage like this. And then soon enough, this identity of who Jesus is, trust me in this, as you start worshiping God and you start meditating on these things, your understanding of who he is is going to grow, and that's going to impact you as a disciple. And ultimately, that's Luke's goal, is he wants us to become better disciples, better followers of who Jesus Christ calls us to be. So let me pray for us, and we'll continue in our worship this morning. Lord Jesus, we just simply want to adore you this morning. We confess that this mystery is great and beyond our puny, finite imaginations and understandings. We thank you for giving us the clarity of Scripture so that we can understand how to describe and how to meditate and how to worship on the fact that you being the eternal Son, at a point in time when the history of redemption was right, you came and took upon yourself our humanity being fully human, fully human in body and soul, so that you would then become the perfect redeemer because you are the sinless one and the holy one. And we want to adore you this morning and proclaim how great you are. And because of this, we know that we have a salvation and a savior that's truly a savior, that this isn't just some kind of a made-up religious hope, but that we know that in you, we have this richness of salvation that will go on for all of eternity as we live and worship in your presence. Amen. Amen.